Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. But let me, let me tell you something that occurred in 1984. And I would like to use that as a springboard for what we want to talk about today. In 1984, <clears throat> we had the uh, Summer Olympic Games, and uh, a commercial appeared on TV just before the Games. That particular commercial featured world record holder Bob Beeman watching his TV set. And he was watching the Olympics. He turned to the camera in the commercial, and as he turned to the camera, he said, quote, Back in the Olympic Games of 1968, I set a world record in the long jump. At the time, some people said no one would ever jump that far again. Well, over the years, I've enjoyed sitting in front of my television set and watching them try. But now there's a new kid, I'm told, who may have a chance of breaking my record. Well, there is just one thing I have to say about that. And I will pause here. I will pause here. I won't tell you what <clears throat> he actually said until a little later. But I will pause here and ask you, what would you say? Here you are, it is 1984, and people are still trying to beat your record. I mean, prior to 1968, when he established his long jump record, records were broken every year or every other year. You, you can see, if you look at the list of the records in a long jump, you see in the 60s there were several people who broke that record one after the other. But then here comes Bob Beeman. He sets that new record, and when he made that statement in 1984, was still unbroken. So here he is saying, there's only one thing I have to say about that kid that may beat my record today. What do you think that he would say? What would you say if your position of prestige was being challenged? I think it's a very interesting question because we think, oh yeah, well, you know, but then when we feel ourselves in, the, in that spot, when we, when we are in that position, sometimes we react differently from the way we would like to be perceived as reacting, from the way we would like to say or to convey that we would react. So let's look at this passage, Matthew 5, 3, a very short statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. And let's understand that, and let's draw the lesson from there so that we can, we can understand how we should react in terms of how important we are, how prestigious we are, how powerful we are, at least in our own eyes. Back in those days, in ancient times, it was a common practice to wrap a section of a speech by beginning and ending with the same phrase and 
by doing that, kind of giving, giving the idea that that part of his speech was one cohesive unit. Well, Jesus did that because in verse 3 he says, for there is a kingdom of heaven, and in verse 10 he concludes that little brief section. He continues on with, that, with some things as well. He continues on talking about persecution after that. But from verse 3 to verse 10, there is one cohesive unit, and he marks by reusing for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, both in verse 3 and in verse 10. So by looking at that, by understanding that, we understand that the topic of this section is the kingdom of heaven. Now, why would that be the case? Well, many Jewish people believe that the kingdom would be ushered in uh, only by a great war, by the force of an army. They were expecting a Messiah that would literally kick out the Romans and restore the kingdom of Israel to its freedom. But that was not the job of Messiah, and it was not the job of Jesus Christ. Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit, the humble, the meek, the peacemakers. And that must have been shocking to the people that said that were thinking that wow we we are waiting for messiah this powerful man who's raised is going to raise a powerful army in israel again and we're going to kick the romans away and we're going to have be have freedom again that must have been kind of almost almost shocking a slap in the face to if you think about their reaction at that moment what it must have been like we are talking Big contrast here. But he did it for a reason, right? He did it for a reason because people understood in those days that poverty and piety were often associated in Judaism with, with righteousness and, and with each other. Sometimes the people who were poor had less distractions and they were relying on God more. Wouldn't you? I mean, I don't see any, any person who's particularly wealthy around here. And what happens, though, when we lose what we have? I know what I do. God, please help. Right? That's the first thing we tend to do. God, I don't know what I'm going to do here. Not, not too long ago, we had, a, we had a job that we had to do, and we, wow, we're all excited, all happy, because finally we got the chance to pay off some bills, and bang, we lost the job. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is, Lord, please, no, no, no. But then when the reality of the loss sets in, Lord, you must have a plan in mind, so please help us through this, because we need that we need you to push us through this to carry us through that and so there you go back in those days often the connection with god was associated with poverty because the rich people didn't need that it was the poor that would say god i need you i need to rely on you and the wealthy person well i got what i need i don't need anything 
Of course, there were exceptions to that, but there was the, the, the general association in that culture. Now, so the term poor here could include physical poverty. You see an example in Luke 6.20. But I think it really points to the faithful dependence on God that is produced by that. And, and, and that is the way we're going to look at it because it doesn't say just blessed are you poor. It says blessed are those are the poor in spirit. And it qualifies that. So you can sense the anticipation in the air here as Jesus sees the crowds. And as he sees the crowds, he goes a little higher and he's getting ready to speak. To speak. Why would he go a little higher? Because they didn't have amplification systems in those days. They were using the natural position of a hill or a rock or, or in, in, you know, a the slope of a mountain, whatever situation they had, to be able to project their voices in such a way that the, everyone in the crowd would be in direct line with their voice so they could hear them while they were speaking. When he finds a position where he can see the entire crowd, now it means he can reach all of them with his voice, then he sits down. And you can imagine that the crowd, when they see him sitting down, you know how a crowd is. They talk to each other. They, they settle down. They, they find their place. Hey, kid, move over there. You know, or, or no, also a little chatter. There's that chatter noise in the crowd before things start to happen, right? But the moment he sits down, imagine this crowd hushing. Because in those days, when the teacher was about to teach, he would sit down. And the moment he sits down, they know he's about to speak. And so here's this hush. And the first words that come out of this mouth are a shocking statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. <sighs> and now you think, wait a second, I'm not poor. Oops. What does it mean? Does it mean that the kingdom of Israel is not for me? Does it mean the Messiah doesn't include me? I am poor. Wow. What does it mean with that? Does it mean I'm going to be recruited and I'm going to be part of the army to take over the, the, the control from the Romans again and then send them away? What does it mean that I, mine is the kingdom of heaven? And what does he mean with that word, the kingdom of heaven? Although perhaps I wouldn't ask so much of a question about that part. Because they were the people of God and they regarded themselves as the people of God, so they may have understood it in that sense. But what a statement. But we need to understand that what came out of the mouth of Jesus at that time on that mountain is what he generally referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a constitution for his kingdom. It is not the way of salvation. It is not how we are saved. It is not saying that unless you become poor, you cannot enter the kingdom because you're not saved. It doesn't say that unless you are poor, you are damned forever or whatever way you want to express that. No. 
it was about the character of those who are part of that kingdom that he was talking. So let's look at that in the context of what we've done in the, in the last several weeks. As we approached the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and what I like to refer to as Resurrection Sunday, because it brings us back to the meaning of the day, and not to some funny bunnies here and there. Anyhow, but as we prepare for Resurrection Day, where we remember that awesome event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and of course in the days prior we remember the crucifixion and the suffering that he exposed himself to, we looked at Jesus and who he is. We looked at the glory of Jesus Christ. We look at his pre-existence, his preeminence in, in all of creation. Then we looked at his sacrifice and how much he was willing to give for us and the meaning of that. And then we looked at the resurrection and immediately after we looked at Jesus cleaning the temple. And we made a reference to the fact that we are defined to be the temple of God. And just as he cleansed the physical temple in his days, so he is in the business of cleaning us, the spiritual temple that he's made, making ready to present pure and immaculate to the Father, as we read in Ephesians 5. So then, I think it is appropriate for us to understand one thing. What does he say that the cleansed Christian looks like? How are we supposed to be? What is the character of the member of the kingdom of heaven who enters into the kingdom of heaven, to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs, as he says in this verse here? What is his or her character? What do they look like? What is that cleansing leading to? And that's why we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount, because it gives us, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> it gives us an answer. It gives us a picture of the character of the Christian, the character that, by extension, then we know that you and I should have and can have and will have, because Jesus Christ, who has started that cleaning process in us, is not going to leave it halfway. It's not like some of us that start cleaning the, the, the kitchen and leave half of the stuff on the side there and, yeah, I'll put it away later, you know. Or, or they clean a house and only clean one room or two and it says, well, all right, I'm tired now. I'll clean the rest some other time. No, when he starts his cleaning job in us, when he starts to purge out all the stuff that defiles, he finishes his job. Not what he says, blessed. <clears throat> what does blessed mean? It's very simple. It means highly favored. Imagine that, being highly favored by God. It would not be a bad place to be, would it? It is not a bad place to be. It is a good place to be because you are blessed in Christ. You are highly favored in Christ. It also means existing in or enjoying happiness. Ah, that's interesting. 
We all look for happiness in life. We look for happiness in all the wrong places, in all the wrong ways. And we all think, well, if you would understand how important I am, then I'll be happier because you will give me the greater respect than I deserve and you will give me what I deserve. And if I, as I get what I deserve, then I'll be happy, right? But look at what Jesus said. He says, no, not at all. He's raising up a number of paradoxes in here, paradoxes that make us think in terms of how we are called to be. Another thing that blessed means, it means enjoying spiritual contentment. Ah, that's interesting. So blessed, meaning highly favored, existing or enjoying happiness and enjoying spiritual contentment are those who have these benefits are filling the blanks because now he makes several points. But in this particular verse, it says they are those who are poor in spirit. Who, what does it mean being poor in spirit? Who are poor, th those people that he is talking about? Poor in spirit means to be consciously dependent on God rather than on ourselves. It means to be poor inwardly. Sometimes that comes also in connection with poverty outside, but not always. There are people, there are Christians that can be wealthy, but still be poor in spirit. They are not necessarily have to be poor financially or physically, Although sometimes that comes together because it is when we lose what we have put our faith in that we begin to realize that our faith should be somewhere else. What does it mean to be poor inwardly, though? Well, one of the things that it means, if you look at Romans chapter 3 and verses 9 to 12, is the ability, not having the ability in ourselves to please God. You and I are not able within ourselves, by ourselves, we are not able to please God. And if you realize that, then you know you are totally dependent on him. And that is part of the meaning of being poor in spirit. I mean, after all, compare that with physical poverty. If I am wealthy, who do I depend on for my food? Well, I just put my hand in the pocket, pull out the money, and pay for my food, and that's it. And I go home thinking, wow, this is cool. I was able to get my own food. But let's suppose for a second that I'm poor. And poor enough to put my hand in the pocket and not have the money for the food. Now what? Can I rely on myself? No. And you know what's humiliating about that? One of the things that is most humiliating about that is the fact that I need to ask someone else to help me out. I need to go to someone and say, I can't buy myself any food. Can you help me out? Because otherwise I'm starving. Why is that humiliating? That's humiliating because it goes against our pride. It goes against everything that we put ourselves up to be. I am better than this. I am better than this. 
I deserve better than this from life. I shouldn't go to this person and say, look, I'm hungry, I need some food. Well, we understand that in the physical level, then understand it spiritually. It's the same thing. If we think we are these righteous people, we are the cream of a crop, we are the best of the best, who do we need? Nobody. Are you kidding me? We are, we are it. We are the best. We got it going. But if we, arise, we realize we are wretched and wretchedly poor, that spiritually we absolutely are unable to make it, and then we need to beg, and we need to ask for the help. Lord, I am spiritually starving. In part because I turned my back to you. In part because of my human nature. In part because this world doesn't lead me to you at all. And I've been following the ways of this world. But I need you. I need your spiritual food. I need that bread of, from heaven that is the fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean spiritually poor, but poor in spirit. Because through the poverty, poverty of Christ, it means that we are made rich. So, keep in mind the difference. Not spiritually poor, but poor in spirit. The actual result of being poor in spirit is we are really spiritually rich. Because then we draw from Christ the source of all things and all blessings and all awesome things. The source of all love, the source of all spirituality. And so we are quite wealthy spiritually. We are quite rich in Christ. So we're not spiritually poor. But we are poor in spirit because we realize that we don't have anything on our own and we realize that we need everything from him and we are totally dependent on him. And that is just like a child. Have you ever seen a baby? Now, okay, here's my um, parenting skill. Hey, husband, the baby is crying, he's hungry, feed him. Hey, baby, you want a burger? Of course you don't do that, right? Hey, get yourself a burger in the fridge. The baby is not going to be able to get himself a burger from the fridge. The baby is not going to be able to eat a burger. The baby is not be able to going to be able to do anything that you and I might be able to do. The baby needs help. It's totally reliant and dependent on us. Just like we are totally reliant and dependent on our spiritual father. That principle stands in stark contrast with the values of this world, though, and points us to a much, much higher value of spiritual dependence. This world says if you depend on somebody else or something else, then you're a wimp. God says you're strong. If you depend on me, you're really strong. That's where your strength really is. Remember what God said to Paul when Paul for three times went to God? After Paul had been used to heal thousands and thousands of people, but it wasn't Paul healing them, it was God healing them through Paul. But he had been used in the healing of thousands of people. He goes to God and says, Lord, I got this problem. Would you please take it away from me? And God says, no. Okay. 
Then a little later, he goes, God, I got this problem. Could you please take it away? And God says, no. So Paul says, oh, boy, okay. Um, third time, um, uh, excuse me, God. <laughs> um, I still got this problem, and it's really holding me back. It's hindering my ministry, and it's really making me less able to do the things I need to do for you. Would you please take it away? And God says, no, Paul, you need that. Because in your weakness, your strength is made perfect. Or better yet, in your weakness, my strength, God says, is made perfect. Ah. So the poor in spirit is not spiritually poor. The poor in spirit is actually the strong person because the strength comes from God, not from ourselves. The poor in spirit is the individual who doesn't stand up and see, look and say, look how righteous I am, look how strong I am, look how spiritual I am. But it's the individual that says, I am a wretched being, and if it wasn't for Christ, I would be absolutely nothing. But in Christ, I can do all things. Because he performs them in me. Look at the contrasting values, though. Look at the contrast between being poor in spirit and the spiritual arrogance of the religious leaders of those days. When they would go with pomp and circumstance and say, look how good I am in their act of worship to be seen by others. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, the same statement is recorded, but now it's recorded in a slightly different way. Notice what Luke says. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say. So Jesus, sitting on that hill, they call it a mountain, but I, I was born in a mountain. I call it a hill. <laughs> okay. Uh, sitting on a rock on that hill, looking at the crowd, he now turned to his disciples that were closer to him. And looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Interesting, isn't it? And, and now you have the stark contrast between some religious leaders, and most likely were present, and these people who were not leaders, who were not wealthy, who were poor, who were destitute, but they had a reliance in God. Look at the contrast with the arrogance. What is the arrogance? Well, arrogance is having a feeling of superiority that shows or is inclined to show itself in claiming more consideration that is due to one position's dignity or power. The typical phrase, you don't know who you are. You don't know who you're speaking to. You don't realize how important I am. And you should be thankful I'm even giving you audience. You know, some Christians act that way. Maybe they don't say, you should be thankful I'm giving you audience, but they, but they do say similar things in many other ways. It's us versus them type of talk. Buddy Robinson wrote this statement. I really like it. Pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except for the one that has it. Think about that. Everything has to be to my standards. Everything has to be according to my values. 
because I'm important. I know what is right. I know how to handle it. I know how to do it. And therefore, you got to look up to me and do what I say, how I say, when I say. That's arrogance. That's a sin. And Christ said, the kingdom of God does not belong to these people. The kingdom of God does not belong to the Pharisees. They were dressing up and showing themselves to be better than everybody else with phylacteries that were bigger and longer and thicker than anybody else. No. Proverbs 26 verse 12 says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? <laughs> there is more hope for a fool than for him. Oh, please, brethren, read the book of Proverbs. Especially in your youth, read the book of Proverbs. Because the book of Proverbs says, if you understand these statements, if you understand these sayings, then you'll acquire wisdom. There is a mental process that goes into understanding the Proverbs that will train you in the way of wisdom. And I don't know any one of you who doesn't want to be wise. Another thing that is in contrast there is a contrast between being poor in spirit and the tendency of people to exaggerate their own worth or importance or rights. You know, I've heard people preach that God has to save you because you're worth it. And that if you don't realize and understand your self-importance and your self-worth, you may even jeopardize your salvation. My, my, oh my. That is bad news. You know, we think of ourselves as being important. I put myself first in there. Why? Because we all have these dreams about ourselves. We want to be good at what we do. Ha, yeah. That may not be too bad because I would rather want to be good in what I'm doing than want to be lousy. But the problem comes in when we think we are good. One pastor was talking to his wife and says, wow, I didn't realize there are not that many preachers, there are many great preachers in this world, you know? And she looked at him and says, yes, and there is even one less than you think. You know, we think of ourselves as being the greatest, the best at sometimes of what we do. And if you've gone to school in the last couple of decades, chances are that you've been brainwashed to think that you are to be the best. Because, hey, that is your, your self-esteem. You can be the best at this. You can be the best at that. You're good at this. You're good at that. You deserve to be praised. And now they're giving you know, rewards and awards to every single person. I mean, if they leave one student in the school that doesn't get some kind of an award during the year. When my kids were in high school, I hated the day of the awards. 
because it was a long list of every name of every student in high school receiving some sort of piece of paper or ribbon or something. And I'm thinking, for crying out loud, what, what happened to this world? Do you think and then they treat you that way in a place of work? Do you think and they think in the place of work they say that everyone deserves a praise? No way. That's so unreal, so out of this world. But then what does he do to us, though? Think about that. What does he do to us spiritually? When we lean on ourselves, when we inflate ourselves with our own self-esteem, with our own self-worth, what happens to us? Here comes the, you know, think about blowing up a balloon. I wish I brought it today. You know, blow up a balloon. (sighs) Imagine that. Okay, this balloon is inflating in here. And here comes the harshness of a trials in life and you know what that is that's a needle that touches the balloon just a little touch boom here goes your self-esteem and down you go you look a little piece of you know floppy remains of the balloon there looking that you know not much left of that it's pretty depressing that's the way we feel when our self-esteem is burst by the things of this world by the challenges by the difficulties. But let's assume that you're not building self-esteem, but Christ-esteem. That you're building yourself not on the sand, but on the rock, and that rock is Christ. And think of yourself as being built on that rock, and now let the storms come in, and you see, you can take that rock, and you take that needle, and I remember doing that on a few occasions, and I usually look for needles and, and rocks that when you strike the needle they put some sparks out in the air because that's more effective and more visual effect right so you can hit that rock as hard as you want with a needle you can strike it as hard as you want and you can see the sparks flying around and you can see the rock maybe even scratched maybe slightly scarred by those trials that the needle represents but you know what pretty soon the needle is dull And the rock is not deflated. And you stand tall in Christ. Look at the contrast in that. Look at the contrast that Jesus is bringing to our attention through that statement here. In in the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea. It was tragic. A lot of people died. But you know what really makes that more sad? Is that the accident was not so much of an accident. It was actually the cause of the accident was human stubbornness. Both the captains knew of each other's presence. They both knew of the presence of the other ship. But both of them said they will give way. Both of them were too proud to admit, to take the first step and say, I need to take evasive action in here. And both of them said, no, he needs to take evasive action or she needs to take evasive action. I am going to stand my ground and they will need to avoid it. And guess what? The two ships ended up colliding because the moment they realized, oh, wait a second, he's not turning his course, it was too late. And a lot of people died because of that. It reminds me of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. 
Think about that for a second. What did Jesus say? Who does the kingdom of heaven belong to? Not the proud, but the poor in spirit. Because the proud will bring destruction, and destruction is not going to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Somebody, we don't know who, said, he who pats himself on the back may end up dislocating the shoulder. It is very true. If you try to pat yourself in the back too much, you're going to end up hurting. Even in failure. Look at today. Look at the politicians today. Look at just about everybody today. Even in our own families, you see that. Even in failure, owning confessional wrongdoing, the values of this world are upside down. Sidney Harris wrote, Some people are so intractably vain that when they admit they are wrong, they want as much credit for admitting it as if they were right. Think about that for a second. But Jesus Christ said that's not the way it's supposed to be. So shall we go back to the Summer Olympics of 1984? You've had time to think about what Bob Beeman might have said to the camera when he turned around and he said, over the years I've enjoyed sitting in front of my television set and watching these kids try to beat my record. But now there's a new kid. I'm told they might have a chance of breaking my record. Well, there's only one thing I have to say about that. What do you think he said? His face softened. And in a most believable way, he says, I hope you make it, kid. I hope you make it. That's the way we should be. All right, this is not a great example of spiritual righteousness. But it's a small example of the way we ought to be. Come on, kid, do it. I hope you make it. It just so happened that that year that kid did not make it because it took all the way until 1991 to break Bob Beeman's record that he set in 1968. And it was broken in 1991 by Mike Powell in Tokyo. It took a long time. But I suppose that Bob Beeman on that day in 1991 said, Yeah! Now you go! Bob Beeman had a record, just in case for you, know, for you that are real sticklers about that. His record was 29 feet and two and a half inches. Mike Powell was 29 feet and 4.4 inches. So you're talking about this much. Not that much, okay? Matthew 19, 14 says, But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and don't hinder them to, from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Why? See, the kingdom of heaven belongs to these people. To the people that are like children. Why? Because they're dependent. Because they're trusting. Because they realize that they can't make it on their own. They know they need their parents. They know they need daddy or mommy. Just like we need our Father in heaven. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 14, when Jesus saw 
that the disciples were sending the children away, he's, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me, don't hinder them. So we have that additional information in Mark that says that he was indignant, he was upset about that, not only because he loves the children, but because they're a model of the humility that you and I should have. They're a model of the dependence that we should have and that we do have on the Father, on our spiritual Father, because they display the simple, not malicious heart that you and I should be guided by, because they display the genuine love that doesn't ask for anything in return, and a little kid will hug mommy and says, love you, mommy. And you don't hear the mama say, yeah, how much you want? Now, later in the teens, that happens, okay? When your teen comes to you and says, love you, daddy. Okay, how much you need now? Oh, just five bucks. <laughs> you know, that changes a little bit. Oh, I need the car, the, the car keys. Yeah, dream on. <laughs> but they're also not worried about tomorrow. I remember sometimes I have these moments where I wish I could go back to my childhood because it was so worry-free. I would just go out of a house totally oblivious of danger and risk and problems and, and the problems that my parents used to talk about. I remember hearing them talk until the wee hours of the night. But I didn't care. It didn't face me. I would go out and play and come back home and if I had some food and I could then I'd go out and play again and I was happy. Why? Because we did not create worries about tomorrow. And God says, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will come by itself. But if you trust in God, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you'll face each day in the right way. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that the Lord would portray such a character trait for his followers and his disciples because, after all, that's the way he is. I would like to conclude by reading to you what Philippians chapter 2 and beginning with verse 5 says about that. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man. Can you imagine if a Pharisee could boast of his spiritual position, how much more Jesus Christ could do that if he wanted to? But that's not what he did. That's not how he is. And that's not how he calls us to be. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. <clears throat> For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What about us? Are we in Christ? If we are in Christ, shouldn't we be moved by the same attitude? Because that's who he is. If Christ is in us, shouldn't he move us in the same attitude? Because that's the way he is. And if you're ever tempted 
if I'm ever tempted. If anyone has ever tempted to think of ourselves too highly and not sovereignly, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying, please don't fall in the pit of thinking of yourself too lowly either, because that is a symbol, is a symptom of pride in itself. <clears throat> but we talk about that some other time. <clears throat> We're instructed by Scripture to have a sober opinion of ourselves and especially to have a sober, a sober opinion of what God is doing in us. But look at this. If, you, if we are tempted, ever tempted, to think too highly of ourselves, go back to Philippians 2 and read verses 5 to 11 and ask yourself, am I better than he is? Because you know the answer. And if he, the highest, the greatest, the most awesome is like that, how much more should we? Every knee will bow, including ours. Do we think we can stand before him? I don't think so. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ, is Lord, not me, not you, but he is. And you see what happens when a pride fills our heart? We think we are good. But Jesus himself said, why do you call me good? Don't you know that only God is good? Well, of course, Jesus was good because he was God. But you and I are not. So we think we are good. Well, then think it again. Christ in us may be good, but we bow down and worship him and confess that he, not us, is the Lord to the glory of the Father. Lord God Almighty, thank you for reminding us of your grace. Thank you for that awesome, beautiful gift that you have given to us to even be able to have a relationship with you. But please, keep us humble and poor in spirit because otherwise we would tend to well we would tend to put ourselves up too much we would tend to be arrogant and proud but grant us the humility that you have and teach us to be like you we love you, we honor you, we, th we thank you, and we want to praise you in not only what we say, but in everything that we do. So please guide us and transform and change our hearts that we may be at one with you. This we ask and praise you and thank you for, in Jesus' name, amen.